You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. We've been working on a, uh, starting a new series and we've called it Discovering Jesus in the Old Testament. Last week, we asked the basic question, what is the Old Testament about? And we said that the Old Testament was about Jesus. And so now we're going to go through and and walk through different portions of the Old Testament, and we're going to see if our theory is true. And today we're going to discover Jesus in creation. I mentioned last week that my Old Testament classes in Bible college and seminary were uh, some of the most disappointing. I'm not going to retract that, but I will give you another reason why. (laughs) And this wasn't something that I, I was disappointed with at the time, but years later, as I looked back on my experience in those classes, I discovered uh, the reason for some of my frustration. In college, for instance, I took uh, several Old Testament classes, and I took classes from different professors. One of the professors was an older professor who had been at the school for decades, and then there was a, a younger professor who was a brand new hire who had actually just finished his PhD. The older professor was greatly respected. He had written books that he used in his own classes, and he was what they call a theistic evolutionist. I didn't know if he liked, I don't know if he liked that term, but that's what he was. The younger professor was a young earth creationist, meaning that he believed the earth to be very young, created in six literal days. This was quite a a difference. One says that God actually used the process of evolution. The other says that God spoke things into existence in six literal days. I remember uh, our theology professor who gave uh, uh, some time to this subject as well was what he called a, a progressive creationist meaning that he believed that the days of creation in the first chapter of Genesis were long periods of time, but he steered clear of evolution. And in my education, I would say that the young professor that was a young earth creationist, uh, that wasn't a, a very common position in academics. It wasn't a common uh, position to take, even at a very uh, conservative school, which the Baptist College of Florida is. And I can't say that being exposed to those differing views was bad, at least in a sense. I was forced to look into the different perspectives and hear from those who had them. But in my mind, it didn't take me long to figure out that the young earth position was the right one. To me, it was a no-brainer And I discovered years later, uh, what I discovered years later helped me to understand at least one reason why my Old Testament classes were a bit disappointing. And that is that all of this discussion seemed to really miss the point. To me, at the time, 
At the time, I didn't realize it, but it was painfully obvious that those original readers of Genesis would have taken the text that takes face value. They wouldn't be concerned with making sense of popular scientific theory that said the earth was millions of years old. And the questions I asked myself were things like, does secular uh, scientific theory really cause us to go to these great lengths to justify scripture? That we have to change the plain and common meaning because we think that we have trouble and we can have a, a true Bible and still have a very old earth? And these are the questions that I was immersing myself in and years later as I'm looking back on all of this, I just couldn't help but think all of this misses the point. So the, the question then becomes, what is Genesis 1 and 2 about? Well, it's about the account of creation. We know that. But that's not really my question. Right? It's not really what is the, the account of, it's what is it about? And I'm going to make the case, I think, that it's about Jesus. Some of you are giving me a little bit of a, a proverbial, I'll be nice and say proverbial eye roll and not a real eye roll, saying this, this guy seems to say everything is about Jesus. And he's reaching here because I have read Genesis 1 and 2 over and over and I didn't see Jesus there. To you, I would ask you to bear with me for a moment. I think you're going to be a little surprised. Last week, I said that we need the New Testament when it comes to the Old Testament. We often think of that in reverse. We often think the more we understand the Old Testament, the better we're going to grasp the New Testament, and that is true. It's true because the Old Testament is foundational to the New Testament, it's context, we know that. But more than that, we need to understand the Old Testament, and we need to understand it properly, and we need to understand it properly, and to do that, we need to understand it in light of the New Testament. Even the creation account. Just think about the opening chapter of Paul's letter to the Colossians, where he is making the case for the preeminence of Christ. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, he says this, he is the image of the invisible God. Let me stop there and just make a parenthetical statement. He is the image of God. Who, who is the image of God? Christ Jesus is the image of God. Who was created in the image of God? Every single human being. Jesus Christ is the perfect image of God. Notice how he's drawing this back to creation already. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in or for by him all things were created. Who? Christ. Things in heaven and on earth. Christ created everything in heaven. Angels. Visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Let that text sink. Just contemplate on how incredible this is. All things were created through him and for him. Seriously. 
The Apostle Paul says that all things were created through him, meaning that all things came into existence through the second person of the Trinity, and all these things came into existence for him. For him. Now just think about this for a moment. If all things were created through Christ Jesus, and it was all created for him, then what is Genesis 1 and 2 about? If it's all for him, then it's all for him, right? It's all about Jesus. Certainly, Paul doesn't say it's about winning an argument or being right about science. Might be in there somewhere, the science stuff, but it's not the purpose. Just think about something here. Why did Moses write these chapters? Who did he write the chapters to? When he was writing Genesis, Moses wrote it. Who is he writing it to? Obviously, he wrote them to us, but as far as Moses was concerned, he wrote these chapters to the nation of Israel who had been redeemed from the iron fist of Egypt. The purpose of Moses writing these chapters was to show a redeemed people their redeemer. Does that make sense? These chapters tell us about creation and how God created. That's there, but the overall purpose is to tell us who the redeemer of them is and how he created it helps us to understand the God that redeemed us. This mattered to the Israelites because they were freed from captivity. They knew what it meant to be freed from bondage. They knew what redemption was. How much more should this mean to you and I who have the entire picture, who recognize the redemption of Israel from the hand of Egypt was pointing to an even greater redemption from a far worse oppressor that all of this was pointing to our need from rescue from the curse of sin and death. Now, of course, Paul isn't the only one to speak of Christ's activity in creation. John does it too. Right at the start of John's gospel, we read this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made, created through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I love this. The connection to the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 couldn't be made any more clear. John starts his gospel in a way that would remind the reader of the opening chapters of Scripture of Genesis, in the beginning. We learn here that Jesus is the agent of creation. All things were made through him. In the very next verse, in him was life, spiritual life, right? He is the agent of creator, he is the agent of creation, and he is the redeemer, he is the giver of life to a sick and fallen people. He is the light of men, and in him was life. He's connecting the creation event to our redemption in that the creator is the redeemer. 
Notice how the author of Hebrews connects Jesus, creation, and redemption in the first few verses of that letter. He says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he did what? Created the world. And he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He is the true, perfect image of God. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, this is redemption, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high because it was finished. He accomplished everything he came to accomplish from start to finish, from creation to redemption. Notice what the author is saying here, that God once spoke through Prophets, in these last days, he speaks through his son. His son is the heir of all things. His son created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And he finished all that he came to do. He dealt with sin and death once and for all and then sat down because it was finished. It is fascinating to me that the New Testament makes this connection between creator and redeemer. And then we start thinking about this and we start to ask questions like, what is the purpose of Genesis 1 and 2? Is it solely to tell us how the world was created? I've heard it said several times the purpose of Genesis 1 is found in the first verse, in the beginning God created. So the point of that, the purpose of it all is that God created It's not so much to tell us how he did it, but that he did do it. But obviously there is more to Genesis 1 and 2 other than that, or there would only be one verse. But I understand why people say this. They're saying this because the, the emphasis there in the first chapters shouldn't be just on science. Certainly that isn't the main point. And we're looking for the main point. God created I would contend that only to say that God is the creator doesn't go far enough. We need to go further and say that these chapters reveal that the creator is the redeemer. The one that saved these people from slavery in Egypt and ultimately the one who redeems us from something far more sinister, the curse of sin and death, to which every person is a slave to which every person willingly continues to walk in the ways of the ruler of this world, that every person continues to oppose the God that created them, the God that came out of heaven and took on flesh to redeem them. So the question I think then becomes is what do these chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, What do they reveal to us about the Redeemer? If that's the point, that the Creator is the Redeemer, then what do they tell us about this Redeemer? Well, I want to give you several ways, and we're going to really run through. I mean, we could spend a long time on each one, but I just want to run through them really quickly. They're all nicely alliterated, thanks to uh, David Murray. I'm not going to take credit for that. And 
uh, but we'll just go through them. We'll just go through them relatively quickly, and I think you're going to see the the big point in the of all of this. First of all, when we look at the creation account and we think about the, the Redeemer, we understand that there was an, a, an arrangement of redemption. In, in other words, the plan of redemption all happened before the foundation of the world. Paul tells us that we were predestined before the foundation of the world. But we also read in Revelation 13, chapter 8, or thir- Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the earth. In other words, as we come to the first chapters of Genesis with our New Testament glasses on, we come with the knowledge that the plan of redemption has already been written. Secondly, we come to the opening chapters of the Bible recognizing what God is doing. He is in creating the world, he's creating the arena of redemption. He's creating the the place where redemption is going to happen. Jonathan Edwards says it this way, the world was doubtless created to be the stage upon which this great and wonderful work of redemption should be transacted. John Calvin over and over uh, calls uh, the world the theater of God, the stage on which the glory of God is displayed. We also see in the first chapters of Genesis the the aim of redemption. How were Adam and Eve created? They were created in the image of God, right? Well, what happens? We know that every person is created in the image of God, but that image is, is marred by sin. It's not destroyed totally, but it's marred. It's as if you take a a penny and you put it on an anvil and you start hitting the the image of Abraham Lincoln with a hammer. The image is still there, but it just becomes unrecognizable. This is what sin has done. And the aim of redemption is taking and restoring that image. Jesus is often described, and we saw this, as the, the true image of God. It's what God is doing in our redemption and taking us and and perfecting us, restoring that image, making us look more like our Redeemer. Fourth, we should think of the creation account in terms of uh, what we could call the accessories of redemption. For instance, why did God create the things that God created? Did you ever think about this? I mean, there's so much creativity, there's so much diversity in creation. The design of the world, for instance, why did God create camels? When you think about it, a camel is a pretty strange animal. But one reason is he created it to use as an illustration showing that it was inherently impossible for a rich person to enter kingdom of heaven. Why did he create sheep? To show us that he was the good shepherd. Why did he create trees? Well, because his son would eventually die on one. And you can point to to almost everything that was created and show how God specifically used this as an accessory in the redemption story. Why did God create angels? There's a lot of speculation about angels. There's a lot of weird beliefs about angels. Some people believe that people become angels and that's how angels 
are created. There are some, uh, some of that all around. And I think it's, the purpose is to give hope to those who are grieving, but it's just not true. God created angels. In fact, in, in the text that we read, it, we read that, that Jesus created everything that was in heaven. And that would include angels. And I would say he did that in the six days of, of creation, like he created everything else. But why? Was it because he was lonely that he needed to be worshiped? But God didn't create them because he needed anything. He created them for his own good pleasure, for his glory, as he would be, uh, as they would be what David Murray calls the assistance of redemption, in that they would take up and they would minister to Christ Jesus during his earthly ministry. In humanity, he, he needed them during the, the 40 days in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil. He needed them to minister to him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Another way we come to the, uh, to the, the creation account is, is we recognize that God was thinking about our ultimate salvation as he created the world. This is what David Murray calls the apex of redemption. Just think about one place, Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. It says it this way. The king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from when? The foundation of the world. The kingdom was prepared for those he would redeem before the foundation of the world. So as he's creating everything, he's thinking about the ultimate salvation of those he came to redeem. Isn't it something that when God was creating all of this, he was preparing the place that those would be in in eternity, those people that he redeemed would be with him for eternity in that place. And I think at this point, we would, we would agree that, that the creation event has a lot to do with our redemption. But as we've said before, that it all points to the author of redemption. So many times we come to the first chapters of the Bible and we ask the, the wrong question. We say, what do these chapters tell us about the created world? Well, they do tell us some things about the created world, but we need to remember that the purpose that Moses had as he included or, or started with the creation event is to point the Israelites to the author of their redemption. So what does creation tell us about our Redeemer? I mean, we could spend an hour on this point, but we'll just take a couple minutes. And let's just list two things. The ramification of these two things are mind-boggling to think about. But the first is the fact that the creation account shows us that the author of our redemption is all-powerful. All-powerful. He created everything simply by willing it to exist. Things seen, things unseen, things on heaven, things on earth. I mean, we can't comprehend that. But let's just apply it one way. I've heard it said several times in my life when speaking to somebody about the things of God, they don't deny the fact that they're a sinner. In fact, they double down on it and say, you know what, I'm unredeemable. There, there have been things that have gone on in my life that have proved me to be unredeemable. I cannot be redeemed. The things that have happened in my life, the dysfunction, the sin, the things that I've been a part of, all of this has served to prove that I am unredeemable. 
But the creation account shows us something here. It shows us that the creator of the world, the redeemer of humankind is all powerful. And if he could create something out of nothing, he can redeem the most fallen person there is. The person that has been more affected by sin than you can possibly ever imagine. He can do that because he is all powerful. Not only is the author of our redemption all powerful, but he's all wise. There's a a great purpose for everything that God does. We're not promised to always understand it, but just think about some of the ways that we've mentioned already that prove him to be wise. When God created light, he knew that his son would be the, the true light sent into a spiritually dark world. When he created trees, he knew that trees would be used in the murder of his son. The foresight in preparing a kingdom that would provide for those, that he would provide for those that he redeems as he's creating the universe. The incredible wisdom of God taking and orchestrating history to perfectly lead to the moment where Christ died on the cross. At just the right time, the Bible says. The wisdom of of a God that would take humanity, that he would raise people up and they would write books throughout human history and that God would take each of those books to tell one story, a story of redemption, no conflicts, one single story of our redemption. And finally, I want you to notice that there is a great application of redemption. And of course, we could apply this in all sorts of ways. How redemption is applied to us. But I want to think about just one as we come to the Lord's table. As we come to the Lord's table, we think about what? We think about our redemption, don't we? That we were once lost. We were once in bondage to sin. We were once hopeless. And we were purchased, we were bought, we were redeemed from that. We sit and we contemplate what Christ has done for us. And just think about that in the light of the creation account. What has he done? Well, not only is the author of our redemption all powerful and all wise, but he's all knowing as well. Some people think that God looked down the tables of time and saw how people would come to faith and he chooses them for salvation based on those things. I mean, there's countless problems with that. Just that God would determine to save people based on something they would do is a huge problem because their salvation is then rooted in their foreseen faith and therefore it is not the mere grace of God. But God before the foundation of the world, created things that were unseen. In other words, he created the, po- the plan of redemption. He put all this together before the world ever existed. Things seen, things unseen. And brothers and sisters, you have to in- understand that that plan includes you. If you trust in Jesus Christ as your redeemer, that plan of redemption 
from the very beginning, in the beginning, includes you. Because not only did God decree it in creation, but he continually brought it to fruition. He brought you or is bringing you to a place in your life where you would see your sin for what it is. Where you would recognize the things that are going on in your life are separating you from God and you need to be redeemed. You need that relationship to be restored. You need to recognize or you recognize that apart from Jesus Christ, you're held accountable to God for all of your sin that you've rightly earned the divine displeasure of God. But God, in his grace, in his undeserved favor, as just when the time was perfect to send his son to be what the Bible calls the propitiation for sin, meaning that his body was crushed for you. It was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. Whatever one thinks about predestination and how all of that stuff works, we must always recognize that in the end, we don't deserve what he did for us. We don't deserve to be saved. We don't deserve to be redeemed. That God sees this rebel this one that is constantly at every turn going their own way. And in his mercy and in his grace, he opens their eyes and allows them to hear the truth of the gospel. That they would place their faith and trust in him and that he would take them and die in their place. As you take a moment here and prepare to to come to the Lord's table, I just want you to, to think about and rest in all that was accomplished for you. And all of this was started before the foundation of the world, that it was planned and put into motion all before everything else was created. And then it was applied to you in Christ Jesus as he died on the cross and his body was broken as the bread represents. His blood spilled for you, right? This is how everything that God did, this redeemer, that he was going to take and redeem people, this is how he did it. In a moment here, I'll have a word of prayer. I'll have the deacons come up and and they'll help serve you but I would just remind you of a couple things. First of all, the, the Lord's table is, is for believers. It's something that we do in the life of our church to, to focus on, to, to orient ourselves toward the cross. We should look at all things in relation to the cross. If the whole Bible's about it, our, our life should be about Christ. It should be the, the center of our lives, but too, afar, too often it's not. Too often we're not even thinking about the gospel when it comes to our faith. We're not even thinking about what Christ has done, what he has accomplished, so that we rest in what Christ has already done. Do you see why this event is for believers? If you've not come to the place where you know that you need to be saved, where you've trusted in Jesus Christ alone to take the punishment that was due you, 
to give you the, the perfect righteousness that you desperately need in order to be accepted by God. If you've not come to that place where you believe this, then we would ask that you just let the plate pass. Children, this is a, a conversation that you need to have with your, your parents, your, your guardian. Um, as, you, as you and them discern the time in which you should participate in this. I would say one more thing before I pray and, and, that, and, and just I want to refer to why I use the term rest so frequently. Of course, when I use that word, I, I mean trust, I mean believe, I mean to have faith. But at the same time, I, I don't want to, to, to modify what I mean by belief. I, I don't want to explain. I mean, you, you need to believe in Christ, but not the same way demons believe. You need to rest in what he has done for you, right? It's the difference between knowing that a parachute will save your life if you jump out of a plane and clinging to it as you've jumped out of a plane. We rest in what Christ has done. He's finished it all. He's completed everything there needs to be completed for our redemption. He has done it all. We come to him in faith, trust in what he has done, and rest there. This moment in the life of a church where we come together to the Lord's table, we're thinking about all of the things that, that Christ has, has, di has, has died for, the sins that we've committed, that, that we've done, that he's paid the price for, that he's accomplished this for us, that he, he died for us. He shed his blood he paid the, the price. His body was broken for us. And what's our job? We can't do anything. We just rest in what he has already done. He's accomplished it all. It is finished. So I pray that this experience in the life of a church would be a, a moment that invigorates your faith, that you recognize what Christ has done for you and you leave here and in a position of, of gratitude, recognizing that, that I have been delivered from so much. And my response to the Redeemer is to live a godly life, a life that pleases him. I want to, I want to live obediently. I want to obey the law, not because it merits me some right position before God. Christ has already earned that but because I'm so grateful that he has earned it for me. That that right position that I have before God, that perfect righteousness comes from what he has done for me, not myself. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.